Section 16 of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrop. Section 16. Henry V. Reigned nine years, 1413 to 1422. Born 1388. Married 1420. Catherine of France. The Men I think I may call this a transitional period of clothes, for it contains the ragged ends of the time of Richard II, and the old clothes of the time of Henry IV, and it contains the germs of a definite fashion, a marked change which came out of the chrysalis stage, and showed itself in the prosperous butterflies of the sixth Henry's time. We retain the houppelande, its curtailments, its exaggerations, its high and low collar, its plain or jagged sleeves. We retain the long hair, which busheth pleasantly, and the short hair of the previous reign. Also we see the new ideas for the priest-cropped hair, and the roundlet hat. I speak of the men only. It was as if, in the press of French affairs, man had but time to ransack his grandfather's and his father's chests, and from thence to pull out a garment or two at a venture. If the garment was a little worn in the upper part of the sleeve, he had a slash made there, and embroidered it round. If the baldric hung with bells was worn out in parts, he cut those pieces away, and turned the baldric into a belt. If the skirts of the houppelande were sadly frayed at the edge, Enter scissors again, to cut them off short. Perhaps the sleeves were good, well, leave them on. Perhaps the skirts were good, and the sleeves soiled, well, cut out the sleeves, and pop in some of his father's bag-sleeves. Mind you, my honest gentleman had trouble brewing. No sooner had he left the wars in Normandy and Guienne than the siege of Hafleur loomed to his vision, and after that Agincourt. Agincourt, where unarmoured men prevailed over mailed knights at the odds of six to one. Agincourt, where archers beat the great knights of France on open ground. Hear them hammer on the French armour with their steel mallets, while the Frenchmen, weighed down with their armour, sank knee-deep in the mud, where we lost a hundred men against the French loss of ten thousand. See the port of Le Havre, with the English army landed there, Henry in his full-sleeved gown, his hair cropped close and shaven round his head from his neck to an inch above his ears, buskins on his feet, for he wore buskins in preference to long boots or pointed shoes. The ships in the harbour are painted in gay colours, red, blue, in stripes, in squares. The sails are sewn with armorial bearings or some device." Some of our gentlemen are wearing open houppelands over their armour. Some wear the stuffed turban on their heads, with a jewelled brooch stuck in it. Some wear the sugar-bag cap, which falls to one side. Some are hooded. Others wear peaked hats. One hears, "'By Halidom!' I wonder if all the many, many people who have hastily written historical novels of this age, and have peppered them with, "'By Halidoms,' knew that, by Halidom means by the relics of the saints, and that an harlot means a man who was a buffoon who told ribald stories. 
Still, among all these gentlemen, clothed, as it were, second-hand, we have the fine fellow, the dandy, he to whom dress is a religion, to whom stuffs are sonnets, cuts are lyrical, and tailors are the poets of their age. Such a man will have his tunic neatly pleated, rejecting the chance folds of the easy-fitting houppelande, the folds of which were determined by the buckling of the belt. His folds will be regular and precise, his collar will be very stiff, with a rolled top, his hose will be of two colours, one to each leg, or party-coloured. His shoes will match his hose, and be of two colours. His turban-hat will be cocked at a jaunty angle. His sleeves will be of a monstrous length and width. He will hang a chain about his neck, and load his fingers with rings. A fellow to him, one of his own kidney, will wear the skirt of his tunic a little longer, and will cause it to be cut up the middle. His sleeves will not be pendant, like drooping wings, but will be swollen like full-blown bagpipes. An inner sleeve, very finely embroidered, will peep under the upper cuff. His collar is done away with, but he wears a little hood with cut edges about his neck. His hair is cropped in the new manner, like a priest's without a tonsure. His hat is of the queer sugar-bag shape, and it flops in a drowsy elegance over the stuffed brim. As for his shoes, they are two fingers long beyond his toes." We shall see the fashions of the two past reigns hopelessly garbled, cobbled, and stitched together, a sleeve from one, a skirt from another. Men-at-arms in short tunics of leather and quilted waistcoats to wear under their half-armour. Beggars in fashions dating from the eleventh century. A great mass of people in undistinguishable attire, looking mostly like voluminous cloaks on spindle-legs, or mere bundles of drapery. Here and there a sober gentleman, in a houppelande of the simplest kind, with wide skirts reaching to his feet, and the belt with the long tongue about his middle. The patterns upon the dresses of these people are heraldry contortions, heraldic beasts intertwined in screws and twists of conventional foliage, griffins and black dogs held by floral chains to architectural branches martlets and salamanders struggling in grotesque bushes, or very elaborate geometrical pattern-stuffs. There is a picture of the Middle Ages which was written by Langland in Piers the Ploughman, a picture of an alehouse, where Perenel of Flanders and Clarice of Coxlane sit with the hangman of Tyburn and a dozen others. It is a picture of the fourteenth century, but it holds good until the time of Henry the Eighth when Skelton, his tutor, describes just such another tavern on the high-road, where some bring wedding-rings to pay their scot of ale, and some bringeth her husband's hood, because the ale is good. Both accounts are gems of description, both full of that rich, happy, gothic flavour, that sense of impressionist portraiture, of broad humour, which distinguishes the drawings in the Luttrell Psalter. I feel now as if I might be accused of being interesting, and of overlaying my history with too much side-comment, and I am well aware that convention demands that such books as this shall be as dull as possible. Then shall the vulgar rejoice, because they have been trained to believe that dullness and knowledge snore in each other's arms. 
However wholeheartedly you may set about writing a list of clothes attributable to certain dates, there will crop up spirits of the age who blur the edges of the dates, and give a lifelike semblance to them which carries the facts into the sphere of fiction, and fiction was ever on the side of truth. No story has ever been invented by man, but it has been beaten out of time by nature and the police courts. No romance has been penned so intricate, but fact will supply a more surprising twist to life. But whereas facts are of necessity bald and naked things, fiction, which is the wardrobe of fact, will clothe truth in more accustomed guise. I put before you some true facts of the clothes of this time, clothed in a little coat of facts, put fictionally. I write the word cloak, describe to you that such people wore circular cloaks, split at one or both sides, on one side to the neck, on the other below the shoulder, of semicircular cloaks, of square cloaks, of oblong cloaks, all of which were worn. I speak of these, and you may cut them out with some thought. But I wish to do more than that. I wish to give you a gleam of the spirit in which the cloaks were worn. A cloak will partake of the very soul and conscience of its owner, become draggle-tailed, flaunting, effeminate, masterful, pompous, or dignified. Trousers, I think, of all the garments of men, fail most to show the state of his soul. They merely proclaim the qualities of his purse. Cloaks give most the true man, and after that there is much in the cock of a hat and the conduct of a cane. In later days one might tell what manner of man had called to find you away if he chanced to leave his snuff-box behind. This reasoning is not finicky, but very profound. Accept it in the right spirit. Now, one more picture of the age. The rich man at home, dressed, as I say, in his father's finery, with some vague additions of his own, has acquired a sense of luxury. He prefers to dine alone, in a room with a chimney and a fire in it. He can see through a window in the wall by his side into the hall, where his more patriarchal forebears love to take their meals. The soiled rushes are being swept away, and fresh herbs and rushes strewn in their place. On these mattresses will in their turn be placed, on which his household presently will lay them down to sleep. THE WOMEN Every time I write the heading The Women to such chapters as these, I feel that such threadbare cloak of chivalry as I may pin about my shoulders is in danger of slipping off. Should I write The Ladies? But although all ladies are women, not all women are ladies. And as it is far finer to be a sweet woman than a great dame, I will adhere to my original heading The Women. However, in the remote ages of which I now write, the ladies were dressed and the women wore clothes, which is a subtle distinction. I dare not bring my reasoning up to the present day. As I said in my last chapter, this was an age of medley, of this and that wardrobe flung open, and old fashions renovated or carried on. Fashion, that elusive goddess, changes her moods and modes with such a quiet swiftness that she leaves us breathless and far behind, with a bundle of silks and velvets in our arms. How is a fashion born? Who mothers it? Who nurses it to fame? And in whose arms does it die? High collar, 
low collar, short hair, long hair, boot, buskin, shoe, who wore you first? Who last condemned you to the world's great rag-market of forgotten fads? Now this, I have said, was a transitional age, but I cannot begin to say who was the first great dame to crown her head with horns, and who the last to forsake the jewelled call. It is only on rare occasions that the decisive step can be traced to any one person or group of persons. Charles the Second and his frock-coat, Brummel and his starched stock are finger-posts on fashion's high road, but they are not quite true guides. Charles was recommended to the coat, and I think the mist of soap and warm water that enshrines Brummel as the apostle of cleanliness blurs also the mirror of truth. It does not much matter. No doubt, and here there will be readers the first to correct me and the last to see my point, there are persons living, full of curious knowledge, who, diving yet more deeply into the dusty crevices of history, could point a finger at the man who first cut his hair in the early fifteenth-century manner, and could write you the name and the dignities of the lady who first crowned her fair head with horns. For myself I begin with certainty, at Adam and the fig-leaf, and after that I plunge into the world's wardrobe in hopes. Certain it is that in this reign the close call grew out of all decent proportions, and swelled into every form of excrescence and protuberance, until, in the reign of Henry the Sixth, it towered above the heads of the ladies, and dwarfed the stature of the men. This curious headgear, the call, after a modest appearance as a mere close, gold-work cap in the time of Edward the Third, grew into a stiffer affair in the time of Richard the Second, but still was little more than a stiff sponge-bag of gold wire and stuff, and a little padding, grew still more in the time of Henry the Fourth, and took squarer shapes and stiffer padding, and in the reign of Henry the Fifth it became like a great orange, with a hole cut in it for the face. An orange which covered the ears, was cut straight across the forehead, and bound all round with a stiff jewelled band. Then came the idea of the horn. Whether some superstitious lady thought that the wearing of horns would keep away the evil eye, or whether it was a mere frivol of some vain duchess, I do not know. As this fashion came most vividly into prominence in the following reign, I shall leave a more detailed description of it until that time, letting myself give but a short notice of its more simple forms. We see the call grow from its circular shape into two box forms on either side of the head, the uppermost points of the boxes are arranged in horns, whose points are of any length from four to fourteen inches. The top of this headdress is covered with a wimple, which is sometimes stiffened with wires. There is also a shape something like a fez or a flower-pot, over which a heavy wimple is hung attached to this shape. Outside the wimple are two horns of silk, linen or stuff, that is, silk bags stuffed to the likeness of horns. I should say that a true picture of this time would give but few of these very elaborate horn headdresses, and the mass of women would be wearing the round call. The surcoat over the coat hardy is the general wear, but it has more fit about it than formerly. The form of the waist and bust are accentuated by means of a band of heavy gold embroidery shaped to the figure. The edges of the surcoat are furred somewhat heavily, 
and the skirt often has a deep border of fur. Sometimes a band of metal ornament runs across the top of the breast and down the centre of the surcoat, coming below the fur edging. The belt over the hips of the coat hardy holds the purse, and often a ballade or a rondle. You will see a few of the old hooplands, with their varieties of sleeve, and in particular that long, loose double sleeve, or rather the very long undersleeve falling over the hand. This undersleeve is part of the hoopland. All the dresses have trains, very full trains, which sweep the ground, and those readers who wish to make such garments must remember to be very generous over the material. The women commonly wear the semicircular mantle, which they fasten across them by cords running through ornamental brooches. They wear very rich metal and enamel belts round their hips, the exact ornamentation of which cannot be described here, but it was the ornament of the age which can easily be discovered. In the country, of course, simpler garments prevail, and plain surcoats and coat hardies are wrapped in cloaks and mantles of homespun material. The hood has not fallen out of use for women, and the peaked hat surmounts it for riding or rough weather. Ladies wear wooden clogs or sandals besides their shoes, and they have not yet taken to the horns upon their heads. Some few of them, the great dames of the counties whose lords have been to London on King's business, or returned from France with new ideas, have donned the elaborate business of head-boxes and wires and great wimples. As one of the ladies rides in the country lanes, she may pass that Augustin convent where Dame Petronilla is spiritual mother to so many, and may see her in Agincourt year keeping her pig-tally with Nicholas Swan the swineherd. They may see some of the labourers she hires dressed in the blood-red cloth she has given them, for the dying of which she paid seven shillings and eightpence for twenty-seven ells. The good dame's nuns are very neat. They have an allowance of six shillings and eightpence a year for dress. This is in 1415. No doubt next year my lady, riding through the lanes, will meet some sturdy beggar, who will whine for arms, pleading that he is an old soldier, lately from the field of Agincourt. End of section 16